Hey y'all, and welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I'm your host, Lacey Dunn, registered dietitian, here to spread the scientific knowledge in the worlds of fitness and nutrition. I'm so excited about today's episode, so make sure you listen in and get ready to learn. Welcome back to Uplift Fit Nutrition Radio. I hope you guys had a Merry Christmas and you're excited for your new year. We got to make some 2020 goals. So get ready, figure those out. Today, my guest is Kevin Bass. He is an MD, PhD student in his sixth year, and he has a wealth of knowledge, and I'm super excited to have him on. So, Kevin, can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are, your interests, and what essentially sparked your passions in science? Um, well, thank you for having me on, Lacey. Uh, so, so my background is uh, I started out in undergrad as a biology and anthropology major. Actually, before that, I was into some other stuff, but that's what I ended up getting my degrees in and um, wasn't sure whether I wanted to go to med school, partly because med school just seemed like at the time, uh, I just felt like I was just treating the symptoms of things. For me, I, I always wanted to get to the core reason why people were unhealthy. And I thought that medicine wasn't going to be the way that I was going to be able to do that. So I took some time before I actually went to medical school. I went to medical school, um, because I, because I started to rethink that particular approach going for the root cause can sometimes be extremely beneficial. And that's what we always want to do when helping people is go for the root cause of their problems. But sometimes helping people just in the small ways incrementally can also make a huge difference in people's lives. And I came to realize that uh, and uh, had that philosophical shift and then decided that maybe I should go to medical school after all, because what else are you going to do? You could do, um, if you want to help people, um, one of the best ways to help people with their health is to go to healthcare. There's, you can't change all the world at once. So maybe, um, helping people incrementally and then also working at the, the, um, the root causes of things at the same time, uh, might be the right approach, which is basically the approach that I, uh, take now. So I was in medical school, uh, at, in an MD only program. Um, I had some research experience before that, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to do medicine actually for a lot of the same reasons I was thinking about before. Um, I was interested in root causes as opposed to, you know, symptom management. I thought a lot of medicine focused on symptom management. So I thought a lot of science is oriented in that same direction. So I actually wasn't interested in doing science for the first uh, year of medical school, and I didn't even think I would do any research at all. Um, but I think as I progressed through medical school, again, my not only did my mentality change, but I also realized that I'm um, at my heart, I'm, a, I'm an intellectual, I'm, I'm somebody who likes to think, I'm somebody who loves theory, I'm somebody who loves ideas and understanding things at a deep level. During med school, I really didn't understand uh, most of what we were learning at a very deep level just because that's not really what med school is about. Med school is mostly about, okay, here's a here's this disease, here's this symptom, here's the drug that you use to treat the disease, here are the different diseases that um, you need to distinguish between that disease uh, from that disease, and then here's uh, the different me- the mechanism of the drug and then the different side effects the drug can have. Um, and how it interacts and how that mechanism interacts with the, the disease mechanism. So you basically, you learn just a couple points on each of those points. And then you learn that about like a thousand different diseases and you have to memorize all of it at once. And it's actually a lot more extensive than that. So you don't actually get a whole lot of chance to learn at a really deep level about um, the diseases and the, uh, the drugs that you're learning about just, just the surface level um, an inch deep and uh, a mile wide. So I, so, um, part of, you know, part of me was, again, I wanted to, to address root causes. And so I wasn't learning much about root causes in medical school. I was learning a lot about the surface level. So I was like, okay, maybe I can go into an, an, an MD PhD program. I can transfer into the PhD program. One of my friends was thinking about doing that. So I was like, okay, maybe I can try something like that out. Um, I applied, I, they first made me do a master's. They wanted to see if I could do research. And then I did the master's. It did well. And they let me into the PhD program side of it. So, um, as I, as I progressed in that, um, again, I sort of progressed to this point that I'm at right now, which is that, um, symptoms and root causes are both important. I still am super fascinated with root causes. I want to know 
why people get, say, for example, diabetes, what can we do about diabetes to alter the fundamental cause of diabetes, but also what small things can we do to make people's lives a little bit better around the edges as well. Both of them are important. And um, what I'm working on right now actually is a ketogenic diet in the context of cancer. I'm also working on a related uh, sort of mechanism, uh, niacin. So niacin also interacts with the, one of the receptors that the ketones interact with on cells. So we're also seeing if niacin can affect the same changes as ketones and the ketogenic diet can in cancer. And so um, it, it, all, it actually, I've been in, interested in nutrition ever since I was a teenager. Um, I've gotten more and more into it over like I think the last five or six years. And it's really strange how my PhD project, which my PhD advisor came up with, I mean, he, he, um, He's the one who assigned this PhD project to me. Uh, that's how a lot of labs work. So it's very interesting how that dovetailed really, really well with my interest in nutrition, my interest in ketogenic diets, my interest in low carb. I've been commenting on that and talking about that for a huge, huge long time. And so it looks like as I'm finishing up the PhD, um, I'll probably end up going to end up going into something where I can combine my interest in medicine with my interest in my longstanding interest in nutrition, maybe even in keto. Um, Certainly, just in um, certainly, I'd just be happy to work in nutrition in general, and that's like the the ten thousand foot view of um, how I got where I am. That's awesome, and I love that you're about that root cause <laughs> yeah. approach. When it comes down to nut- nutrition, the hardest thing is sifting through research and sifting through methods and all that stuff. So I'm really glad that I have you on here so we can dive into some key and I would say some um, controversial nutrition topics that we can dive into the truth and what the literature says right now. So you mentioned ketogenic diets. So let's chat about them. Ketogenic diets, how do they impact the body physiologically and how do they impact energy expenditure and basal metabolic rate? Because I've seen this in the literature so much and people combating uh, back and forth in between what actually they do. So can you give us a little bit more insight into that? Yeah, so a, a little bit more background because it is important to explain like sort of why why you, why, why I think maybe one of the reasons you invited me here is I am known on the internet as somebody who, um, is controversial. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a funny word controversial. It's like, I wouldn't, shouldn't think I'm controversial just cause I'm trying to report what I think the science says. I think a lot of people try to hype, hype the science and say that it says a lot of things that it doesn't say. And I'm very blunt in saying that, that, approach to communicating science is not um, not helpful for a lot of people. Now, no, actually, so thank I think, you. I think it can sometimes be harmful. So in the context of the ketogenic diet, well, there's a lot, as we both know, and as your listeners know, um, many of your listeners, is that, uh, and the ketogenic diet has a lot of hype around it. It has a lot of talk about, um, there's a lot of people who think that it will you know, by getting insulin low, by getting ketones high, have this revolutionary impact on health, which will you know, prevent diseases, cure diseases. And, uh, and there's many people with anecdotes and testimonials that will say that, you know, that's nothing worked for them until they tried the ketogenic diet. And then suddenly the ketogenic diet, um, reverse these like 30, 30 year standing, um, health problems. So yeah. Um, that's one of my fascinations with the ketogenic diet. I love, I, and I was actually super, um, I, I've used the ketogenic diet before. I've gone on two cycles of the ketogenic diet. I've been low. I was low carb uh, starting in like my early twenties, and for about ten years, I was low carb. And so, um, and then later on, after I, I did that for a long time, I tried actually carbohydrate, and I saw that wow, uh, it turns out that uh, carbs aren't going to kill me. I don't feel like I'm getting. I'm not getting obese by eating carbohydrates, and so that set me on this long path of going back and then criticizing um, a lot of the hype around the ketogenic diet. And that was actually my entrance into this sort of space of criticizing overhyped science. So it's, um, it's appropriate that uh, it's appropriate that, um, that we're talking about this. So with the ketogenic diet, energy and expenditure, well, there's, so there's been like something like 30 studies. It's, it's been around like 30 studies that have, um, examined the effects of ketogenic on energy expenditure in humans. Most of them have not 
um, on average, if you average them all out, there's zero, there's pretty much zero effect of the ketogenic diet in humans and carbohydrate restricted diets in humans, um, with maybe even advantage to low fat diets. Um, and the reason for that might be that, uh, carbohydrates actually can increase thyroid function. You might know a little bit about that. Um, so, I mean, so they can cause more, um, I think they can actually increase T3 levels. I don't know if you, um, I believe they can cause, they can increase T3 levels. So that might be one mechanism by which carbohydrates can increase, uh, the metabolic rate. However, there's some researchers, for example, Dr. Ludwig, who believe that the ketogenic diet increases metabolic rate and they believe it does so by reducing insulin, which allows, uh, metabolic substrate to be released into the blood, which the body can then use. And then you, your metabolic rate goes up because the idea behind the carbohydrate insulin model very briefly, and it's not really well defined a lot of times. And a lot of times people change what it is, depending upon what research findings are, they're wanting to, to try to, (laughs) to try to say aren't right. So, because a lot of research says that the carbohydrate insulin model, according to different definitions is not right. So sometimes people change definitions just to make it, to, to make the model, um, continue going on. So, but a, one definition of, of the carbohydrate insulin model is basically whenever, um, you eat carbohydrate, it causes insulin levels to go up, which causes, um, the fatty acids and the glu- glucose in the, uh, blood to be shuttled into the tissue. So then it's not available for your body to use as energy. Um, so as a result, you, uh, your, your metabolic rate goes down. So the idea is if you carbohydrate restrict, then you're making things available again, your metabolic rate should go up. Okay. So there's one researcher who thinks that that's the case. His name is David Ludwig, as I mentioned. And he, um, recently has published a study. I think it was last year, late last year where I think in December where he showed that after you had a um, three groups of subjects, they lost weight. Uh, then they each went on to different diets. One was very carbohydrate restricted. One was moderately, and one was not carbohydrate restricted and they were matched in every other way. Um, he, he, he thought, and, and many people think that he showed that the metabolic rate, um, was higher in the patients who had the carbohydrate restricted diet. There's a lot of controversy about this particular study, which basically around some of the methods that were used, some of the values, um, some of the physiological parameters, some of the physiological values of some of the patients who saw a supposedly large increase in metabolic rate are um, physically impossible. And there's some reasons why people think that this is the case. Maybe the, um, so there's a technique called the double water uh, method. I don't want to get too much into the into the waters because I actually, in my, in my, in, um, in all honesty, I only know the, maybe the 1000 foot view on this, but according to what I understand with the double label water method, if you use this particular constant, um, depending upon which constant you use and there's different assumptions baked into which, which constant you use for, uh, calculating the values from the double, double labeled water method, you will get, um, uh, a result that shows an increase in energy expenditure or not an increase in energy expenditure. And in the case where you see an increase, the, there's several patients that show in a physically impossible, um, physiological parameters. So once you get rid of those particular patients, then the effect goes away. Or once you change that constant to be something that some people think is more reasonable, the effect goes away. So there's some controversy, whether those, uh, findings are really legitimate. There's another study coming on from David Ludwig. I don't remember the precise details. Uh, it's going to test a lot of these things over again. And of course, David Ludwig is constantly, I mean, very frequently arguing with another scientist named um, Kevin Hall at the NIH about this. Kevin Hall showed in several of his studies that there is no change. My personal opinion is that, um, uh, I mean, I don't think this is an opinion. I think this is basically what the science shows. I think even David Ludwig would agree with this, is that um, the science, I think the science currently, um, the, the evidence for a, a difference is is weak. It depends upon what assumptions that you make, uh, which outliers you throw out or don't throw out. So um, or you, you could say it's either weak or it's modest. It's certainly not set in stone. It's certainly not shown for sure because I think the methods aren't and, and the way that the studies have been conducted have, haven't been strong enough to be able to show that for sure. Um, so it could or could not be the case. And it's still, I think the evidence says that it's still unknown that that's the case. There's a, 
there's arguments, strong arguments to be made that it's not the case. And then some arguments as well, I think that there's a modest effect. Now, so I guess the question is, is whether a carbohydrate restriction can, in practical terms, be more beneficial for people trying to lose weight than um, other diets that are not carbohydrate restricted, but are perhaps calorie restricted. So uh, I think the effect of the, of the metabolic rate is very modest. So it's not going to it's not going to outdo like overeating on the order of like 500 to a thousand calories a day. You still need to calorie restrict. Um, even if you're on a ketogenic diet and even if this effect exists, but, um, it might, it might lend a little bit of help to people who are thinking about weight loss and are thinking that they, um, would like this special effect. But again, no, but we don't know for sure that this, um, effect actually exists. The other side of ketogenic diets that might be helpful is appetite suppression. I used to think that appetite suppression was, real and that ketogenic diets do suppress appetite, um, namely through the ketones. Apparently the ketones might have an effect on the brain, which causes, um, changes in the way that the, maybe the brain and the gastrointestinal tract, which causes the way that the, uh, appetite hormones are, um, uh, expressed or, or secreted. Um, the way that I'm thinking about that now is it probably depends on what you're comparing the ketogenic diet to. So if you're comparing ketogenic diet to standard American diet, certainly the appetite hormones are going to be much better and you're probably going to experience appetite suppression. But if you're comparing ketogenic diet to really good whole foods and very intelligently designed um, and a high quality um, diet, then it, it, you may not actually see the appetite suppress, suppress effects. I think this is very unclear still. So most of the studies that have that have compared the ketogenic diet to something else, compared it to either dextrose in the case of exogenous ketones, it's a, whole, a set of studies, or they've compared a ketogenic diet to a, um, a relatively refined diet. They haven't really compared a ketogenic diet, to, as far as I know, to a whole foods diet. And so I think that those appetite suppressive effects are still, it's a question of compared to what. I hope that answers some of the questions. I mean, there's still some uncertainty. Actually, there's uncertainty around a lot of it, but I think that sort of gives the layout of the field as it looks right now. Yeah, no, that was a great recap. When it comes down to the ketogenic diets and the impact on basal metabolic rate, energy expenditure, I think people just get so stuck in the nuances and they forget the overall picture that what matters if you're trying to lose weight is just the weight loss and the overall um, caloric intake of the diet versus the minuscule, maybe 2% yeah. that yeah. could you could benefit with the ketogenic diet. Um, when it comes down to the studies we see in the literature, I think for me, the most frustrating thing is seeing studies that are not, like you said, they're not focused on the whole foods diet and looking at that comparison. And they're also not matching for protein. That is like one of the yeah, worst yeah. thing. I always see it. And I'm like, come on, guys. Ever, why you guys keep doing this? You've got to match for protein, but I get it too. You know, protein, also you're looking at protein contributing to increasing the carbohydrates and reducing the amount of ketones that could be potentially produced. But, you know, there's so many different factors. And so my listeners, you guys just just focus on the diet that's going to work for you, that makes you feel good and that you can stick to. Yeah, for sure. I, and I think that protein is a really big issue, as you pointed out, because um, higher protein diets tend to result in better body composition, lower fat, more muscle. So a lot of people who go on a ketogenic diet starting from, um, just sort of an average diet, will see big improvements in their body composition. And that's largely attributable to protein. And in fact, a lot of the studies that were from Finney and Volek's lab and from a lot of other, um, labs that look at in, um, athletic performance. If you compare a ketogenic diet, it has a lot more protein to a, a diet that doesn't have as much protein. Yeah, of course, you're going to see body composition changes. But whenever you control for protein and you um, in, in the real world, whenever you actually focus on um, getting adequate protein, a lot of those um, effects will will be much diminished and probably not there at all. So uh, and then and it's actually really interesting because in the uh, animal models, they showed an effect on energy expenditure for ketogenic diets, but they've also shown an, exp um, and in, and in the animal models, they use a, a protein restricted, uh, paradigm, which is actually really interesting because that's nothing like the human, um, situation. So, uh, when, and then they show that that's through this hormone called FGF 21. And then whenever you actually look at uh, protein matched ketogenic diets in humans, and you look at FGF 21, you see no difference because it's protein matched most probably. And you also have this whole controversy about metabolic rate once protein becomes comparable. So yeah, the, the whole problem with the field is a lot of people don't 
adequately control for these different factors. And then the people who do adequately control for these factors aren't, aren't always recognized in this good science that they do. And a lot of times, um, less controlled science is hyped on social media to a degree that uh, it's not justified whenever you actually look at the whole of the evidence. So yeah, protein's important. Exactly. So got to keep that in mind when you're listening and looking at studies and also keep in mind when you're following different people, whether it be on Twitter, social media, Facebook, I don't, whatever it is, Make sure you're looking and questioning whether what they're saying is kind of like tying to emotion. If they're trying to say like there's a right or wrong or there's a significant one-way road um, for reaching your goal, you got to make sure that people are looking at all, diff- all different sides. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. I think I turned off my – were you able to hear me? I, was, I heard you. Okay, perfect. My mic, for some reason, I don't know if it was on or not. So we are good. Um, Now let's chat a little bit about something else that I had in mind. And I know a lot of people keep asking me this. So let's talk about game changers. (laughs) Yeah, game changers. Um, Yeah, let's talk about game changers. So game changers. uh, So when I first watched game changers, I was focused on a lot of the things that guys like um Layden norton i'm sure you know who lane is and okay. uh, uh, yeah <laughs> and a couple of other people were focusing on which is that if you look at the the science that they use and the way that they represent the science it was very um th- there was a lot of how do i say uh you call it misrep- misrepresentation you could also call it um exaggeration um Basically, it didn't. It, it was very unnuanced, and it was very uh, focused on telling a really good story rather than reporting the science in a in a balanced way. That's what I thought about it at first. I agree with Lane Norton by and large, like ninety percent, ninety five percent of what he wrote in his particular review. Um, and there's even some other stuff. Oh, there's a lot of stuff that you could write, even a lot more than even Lane wrote about how uh, the science is is not always. Uh, represented accurately on, but on the other hand like okay so the question is is despite this okay maybe the science isn't represented accurately but still it might be able to help people well i started thinking about it again um will it will actually help people and i have a, a a large amount of nutrition science knowledge and so the frame that i was looking at it originally which is that okay do plant-based diets actually help people I started rethinking that frame because I started thinking about it in terms of if I was a person who didn't know anything about nutrition and I was just learning some of the most basic things about nutrition for the first time from Game Changers, what would I actually take away from it? And I did an analysis of the Game Changers where I looked at a lot of different, uh, basically I looked at all the different statements in Game Changers. I took a, a subtitles document and then I searched through all the keywords. So say I searched for meat, I searched for plants, I searched for vegan, vegetarian, and I made these different tabs in an Excel spreadsheet that cataloged all of these different statements. So there's something like 120 statements, something like that, um, containing all these words. And then I then categorize each of these statements to get a big, to get an overall understanding of systematically what was the film saying about plant-based diets and about food quality. And so what I took away from this particular exercise was it didn't talk about food quality, uh, at all, except for there's one time that James talked about in passing a study where um, where uh, sugar and white flour might result in worse body composition, but uh, whole whole carbohydrates result in better composition. There's a single line in the movie, and then there's like four to six different lines in the movie that talk about how um, all all you need to do is is go vegan, and then you can eat all these vegan junk foods. There's there's two lines in the movie where whole food plant-based diet is mentioned in passing, but that's never defined what a whole food plant-based diet is. It's never talked about at any place in the movie that it like they never have like a segment that's like two minutes, three minutes long where like, yes, vegan diets are, are can be can be very healthful, but it's um but it's it's whole foods that are is what is gonna make it healthful. So when you actually look at the research about plant-based diets, uh, for, for example, there's this 2017 uh, Journal of American College of Cardiology, and a lot of cardiologists love this paper. They talk about it with their patients all the time. I talk to cardiologists who are well-known on social media about plant-based diets all the time, and they all tell me that this study is one of the most important studies that they talk about with their patients. It just basically shows that 
plant-based diets that are unhealthy are uh, actually result in worse cardiovascular outcomes. They're associated in, in observational studies with worse cardiovascular outcomes, but plant-based diets that are healthy are associated with better cardiovascular outcomes. So the, so the question is, is, is the plant-based diet that you're eating healthy or unhealthy and actually determines whether the plant-based diet is healthy? Well, so in the game changers, they didn't talk about the quality of the diet whatsoever. They just said that plant-based diets, um, however you actually achieve them are going to be healthy. And that's actually incorrect. So I really worry that people who are watching the game changers, uh, whether or not it's, it's scientifically accurate, just what it's telling people to do. I, I worry that that's actually going to, whether that's actually going to help or hurt people. And I think that if people do follow the game changers, um, the, the, the model or the paradigm represented in the game changers. And, and by the way, I think the last like 10 lines in the game changers, including the very last line was about vegan junk foods. So that was the final message given in the game changers. And people can double check that. Um, cause I was very surprised to actually see that, uh, whenever I did this analysis, um, if you follow that, I worry that people are, there's health is actually going to get worse if they're not, um, if they're not uh, 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 taking into account food quality. And I think it's very unfortunate that a movie that could have actually promoted healthy vegan diets um, might actually have inadvertently promoted unhealthy vegan diets and, and might actually harm people in, in the, in, um, who follow the, the recommendations or follow the way that the vegan diet is represented in the movie. So, Very, very well said. I struggle with seeing people go, say, oh, I'm going to go plant-based. I'm going to go vegan and not necessarily know what they're getting into and know that there is a right or wrong way to do that. There are nutrients that you may be missing, restrictions that don't need to be made in order to get the benefits or achieve the goals that you want with the diet. Um, when it comes down to the game changers, for my listeners that may not know, this was a more kind of so like a vegan propaganda for athletes kind of movie on Netflix. And some of the science that they listed out on this quote unquote science that they listed out on this film was inaccurate and very much cherry picking of some data um, and misrepresentation of what a non-plant-based diet, an animal-based diet can do to your body. So I'm very glad you mentioned that. Now, what were your thoughts on um, a, kind of some of the claims that were made in this, such as animal protein increases inflammation? Yeah, um, I'm not a, I'm not aware of any human studies that um, that show that. If if there were human studies that show that, I would be tweeting them all the time. I would be talking about them on social media all the time. I've never seen any studies that have shown that there has been a couple studies that have shown that, um, protein, and I think they used animal protein decreases inflammation. Some of the problems with those studies though, apparently there's pre-registration problems. There's like some serious methodological problems with those studies as well. My feeling is that, um, I don't think anybody's ever shown that animal protein increases inflammation or decreases inflammation with, like, I don't think anybody's shown that strongly one way or the other. Um, I do think there, there's a very consistent epidemiological association with, between animal protein and, um, adverse outcomes, including, you know, all sorts of diseases. Now the question is, is, and, and it's, it's a pretty consistent epidemiological association showing if you replace animal protein with plant protein, you're going to get um, better disease outcomes. So there's, there's a whole set of questions around that. And one of which of course is, well, are people eating a bunch of animal protein also unhealthy in all sorts of other different ways? And it, um, is this confounding the interpretation and making it look like animal protein is worse than it actually is? And other, um, there's other considerations like that. And I agree with those considerations. I think that you can't, if, in, 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 an ideal situation, we wouldn't want to base recommendations on um, epidemiological studies. We'd want to base them on randomized control trials, exactly what you're saying. We would want to base them on, say, randomizing one group to, say, half of their protein or all of their protein is from plant protein, and in the other group, um, all of their protein is from animal protein. Um, then we would want to, like, put them on that for, for uh, a, you know, however long. I mean, there's different considerations and different 
advantages and disadvantages to how long you would want that study to be. Uh, I would say maybe do it for a week and then have calories matched and then look at inflammatory markers. And if you see a higher inflammatory markers in the animal protein group and you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of subjects and your your study is designed very well, say they were all the patients were given the right food, uh, they're given the food and then it was counted, like all of, all of that they ate and they didn't eat was counted afterwards and so you had perfect control of what people consumed. That would be the one kind of study that we'd want to have. And optimally, we'd want to have a study where we follow people up on that same kind of regimen for a year and see if they have any difference in heart disease or those kinds of things. But we don't have that data. We have um, a, a lot of ambiguity in the randomized controlled trial literature, as far as I know. And then somebody please message me and say, no, it's very clear. But as far as I've looked at it, and I've looked at it over and over and over again, and as far as I've talked to anybody about this, um, it is very unclear in the randomized control trial literature. So we have to make a decision, um, animal versus plant protein. My personal view is if you, if you have to make a decision, you go with the best data that you have, even if it's flawed. Um, so I go with um, eating more plant protein than animal protein. This could be wrong. It could end up that's just a, um, epidemiologically confounded. But, uh, but how do you make that kind of decision when you don't when you don't have the evidence. And I, I guess it's some, something of a philosophical issue, it's all, but it's a practical issue, right? Because if, if I'm treating patients and I'm trying to say, I want the best outcome for my patients, what am I going to do? Am I going to tell them if there's very few downsides to plant protein versus animal protein, I'll probably tell them to go with um, more plant protein. On the other hand, let's so beans, nuts, those kinds of things. On the other hand, um, as you're saying though, like, I don't think that there's any, like, I don't think that there's any evidence in the randomized control trial literature, the human studies literature that, um, animal protein causes more inflammation. There is some evidence that it might cause higher LDL levels. There's a Ronald Kraut, it's like 2016, 2017, or maybe even 18. The first author is Chu, C-H-I-U, and the last author is Kraus. It's one of Ronald Kraus's studies where he has, I think, three groups, I want to say there's a saturated fat group. There's four groups, high and low saturated fat, and then uh, plant versus animal protein. And he shows that the uh, animal protein group has higher, tends to have higher cholesterol levels. That's just statistically significant. So there's a lot of findings like this that are very um, small and modest. And, um, and then there's a lot of null findings as well. And then there's a lot of epidemiological findings. And I think the whole of the evidence in my opinion, leans towards eating, trying to eat more plants than animals. But again, if, if the game changer said that, um, plant animal proteins cause inflammation that as far as I'm, as far as I understand is inaccurate. And I would, I would, I would say I'm 95% certain that that's not accurate. So, um, yeah, my, my whole deal is people tend to overhype these modest or unclear findings, mm -hmm. and then they don't actually talk about the uncertainty that's around them. And so we can't have a rational discussion about which way we go probabilistically and how people make decisions based upon uncertain evidence that we ha currently have. So that's, that's sort of my uh, sort of tortured <laughs> um, a take on it. I full wholeheartedly agree. And when it comes down to that protein, it's also about the quality of the protein. Where's that meat from? What did that animal eat with the plant proteins? What is the quality of that plant protein? Where was it grown? What was the soil like? What does the yeah. rest of somebody else's diet look like? We we get so fixated yeah, sure, in these sure, nuances sure. and we got yeah, yeah, yeah. we got to focus instead of focusing in we got to focus out on the whole entire diet because that is what matters when it comes down to total inflammation totally yeah and i think that there are definitely some potential downsides to being too restricted on animal protein for example um you might have low iron levels i tend to have low iron levels whenever i go too plant-based and so Maybe there might be some downsides, but maybe there might the upsides might be uh, more substantial to eating more um, animal protein at the same time. And so the whole the whole thing that you're talking about context becomes very important. And then the other thing about uh, the the plant protein, well, so some sometimes that pea protein that you're getting might be coming from China, and maybe it might not even be necessarily be from China. It could be from America, and maybe the soil that that uh, pea protein was grown on 
those peas were grown on uh, might have a lot of heavy metals. And actually a lot of mm-hmm. heavy metals have been found in a lot of uh, protein powders. And that's something that I worry about. So if I'm eating this plant protein thinking it's healthier, but then I'm uh, getting these heavy metals, like, is that really uh, worth the trade-off? So yeah, sure. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Well said. And just to mention, because it popped in my head right away, when we're looking at supplements, guys, you really got to pay attention to the quality. I know I use Consumer Labs, Labdoor, because you can take like that pea protein, you can take a whey protein, you can take an omega-3 fatty acid supplement. But if the omega is rancid, if the pea protein, the whey protein is contaminated with heavy metals, um, if your supplements do not have what you think they have in them, that's not going to get you the benefits that you're wanting. So got to be very careful. Just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Totally. Yeah, those are great websites. So let's transition because we talked about a little bit about saturated fat when we're talking about game changers when we're talking about ketogenic diets because as we know a lot of different ketogenic dieters they tend to think that just means all the bacon and all the eggs and all the fatty meats so we got to talk about saturated fat and I really wanted to have you talk more about saturated fat cardiovascular disease and blood cholesterol so can you dive a little bit into that for me and the I would say not the detrimental um, effects of saturated fat because saturated fat has its place in the diet it can be very beneficial I know for me I love my eggs I love my coconut Um, but let's chat a little bit more about saturated fat and why it is not the demon for everybody's health. Well, so um, sat, sat, okay, so saturated fat. I think we got a little bit into this earlier. Saturated fat. Um, you always have to compare every food that you're looking at and asking whether it's healthy or not healthy. Uh, you always have to compare it to something. So, um, what the paradigm has been when looking at the effect of saturated fat on blood cholesterol levels is what's called, um, it's a, I, I would call it the, a replacement paradigm. So if you replace a certain amount of saturated fat with a certain amount of monounsaturated fat, so say you replace coconut oil with, uh, with um, olive oil, which way are your blood lipids going to go? If you replace coconut oil with, uh, say, co- canola oil, which way are the blood lipids going to go? If you replace it with sugar, which way are the blood lipids are going to go? And this and this is really important to emphasize, and a lot of people struggle with this concept. So it's so it's really important that that listeners and that people who are interested in this area really have this down. Replacement and talking about things in terms of this replacement paradigm is incredibly important because you can't just eliminate saturated fat from the diet, or you can't just eliminate olive oil or whatever from the diet because then you're um, you're going into a calorie deficit, and the calorie deficit confounds the uh, changes in lipids that would happen from changing the uh, from from removing that particular fat. So you have to replace isocalorically, or otherwise you're confounded by basically a caloric deficit or weight loss. So we're always talking about these fatty acids in terms of replacing them with something else. So when you replace saturated fat, does that make sense? Um, Lacey? Oh yeah, definitely. And that's what we see in the literature all the time. Okay. Okay. So when you replace saturated fat with, uh, olive oil, the, you'll get a modest decrease, say per 1%. There's a really great, um, report released by the world health organization. The primary author is Mensink. I think it's 2017 and Mensink, Ronald Mensink is really well known in the, uh, the lipids world for his, knowledge and for his meta-analyses on these replacement studies. And he, he met, he analyzed, I think something like 160 of, of these replacement studies and combined them together into one, um, analysis that showed the effects of the replacement of say saturated fat with unsaturated fat. So you take coconut oil, you replace it with olive oil. What's going to happen. And so for each 1% replacement of saturated fat with unsaturated fat, um, for example, olive oil, you would get a modest um, decrease in blood cholesterol levels. And in particular, you'd also get a decrease in LDL levels and ApoB levels. And ApoB, ApoB is the, uh, I feel like we're just going through a lot of information. Maybe we'll return to ApoB later, but you basically get an improvement in your lipids profile when you replace saturated fat with unsaturated fat, in particular monounsaturated fat. When you replace it with polyunsaturated fat, you get an even bigger 
uh, improvement. When you replace it with, say, sugar, there's very little change at all. So saturated fat and refined carbohydrates tend to respond and, re and to cause the lipid profile to change in roughly the same direction. So if you replace one with the other, you don't get much difference. But if you start to replace each of these with um, unsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and especially polyunsaturated fats, you get a bigger and bigger uh, improvement in the lipid profile. So it's thought as a result of this that polyunsaturated fats are the most heart-healthy fats to be eating and actually more heart-healthy than a lot of carbohydrate. That said, a lot of these carbohydrates in these studies aren't actually unrefined carbohydrates, so we don't actually know what unrefined carbohydrates do in a lot of um, according to this particular meta-analysis, there might be other studies that try to differentiate between refined and unrefined carbohydrate on, uh, with regard to their effects on the lipid profile. I've looked for these studies. I can't find them. I'm sure somebody who's an expert in the field would be able to point to them pretty quickly because it seems like an obvious question to ask. I, I looked for a few hours, couldn't find it. But we do know that um, if it's refined, uh, it doesn't look very good either. But Again, polyunsaturated fats look great. Okay, so then it's thought that that since since this lipid profile is one of the main drivers of cardiovascular disease risk, it's not the only driver, and there's a lot of other drivers like smoking, blood pressure, age, gender, uh, um, like blood glucose. If you have diabetes, all of these have are independently other risk factors that are very important, and all of those together, even if you have a low, even if you have good blood lipids, can still cause you to have cardiovascular disease. So. Cardiovascular disease is multifactorial. It causes, has all sorts of different inputs, and each of these inputs uh, synergizes with the others to either make risk much worse or much better. So since um, lipids are relatively easy to modulate with fatty acid composition, one of the ideas is, okay, let's just um, replace as much of our saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat or with any kind of unsaturated fat, and then we're going to get better cardiovascular disease risk. And that tends to be um, verified by virtually all of the observational studies. Um, and, uh, and I believe, uh, and I think the animal literature as, as well, uh, points in that direction. So that's why we have this recommendation to eat more unsaturated fat. If you like, uh, saturated fat sources, um, that's great. Now, it's really interesting as far as the uh, meta-analysis literature is concerned. There's a really important meta-analysis, I said, about 2017, but there's also one like 2006. Both of them had Mensink as one of the uh, primary authors. So uh, they, had, they gave different values uh, in terms of how, how bad it makes your blood lipids for, um, for lauric acid, which is one of the main fatty acids in coconut oil. Um, the most recent meta-analysis, I think, tends to put lauric acid as not, not very bad. But the first meta-analysis makes lauric acid look quite bad. Um, I've talked to people who are very familiar with these meta-analyses, and they, they're not sure where that comes from. I think there's a couple of studies that that relies upon. And it might have something to do with whether it's extra virgin or all, all this whole discussion about the processing. So I think there's some uncertainty around coconut oil about how what direction it takes the lipids, whether it's bad or whether it's not as bad. Um, so that's an interesting sort of nuance there. I, I, again, uh, we, you, you're talking about total context, and I agree 100%. I was actually just thinking about this when I was running this morning. Um, because there are some benefits to sources like eggs, for example, you get choline and Choline has been thought by many researchers, although it's still it's unclear, but choline has been thought by many researchers to be quite important. And in fact, it's an important part of the um, I, you know this better than I do. Uh, it's an important part of the, the uh, recommended daily allowance or whatever. So there's a certain amount of choline that the government, the, the guidelines tell people that they should be getting. Most people don't actually meet that recommendation. And so eggs are an excellent source of choline. The other interesting thing about eggs is a lot of the fat in Eggs is not actually saturated fat. A lot of it is actually polyunsaturated fat. Eggs do have a lot of eggs do have a lot of cholesterol, however. So, in a certain number of people, a uh, certain small uh, minority of people, well, maybe about a third of people, they'll tend to respond strongly to dietary cholesterol and get much higher dietary, much higher blood cholesterol in response to dietary cholesterol, which may actually increase cardiovascular disease risk. This is I'm one of those people. So, if I eat a bunch of eggs, my cholesterol goes, goes up quite a bit, not, not actually to a huge extent. And so there are people who actually get it to a huge extent. So, 
but then about a third of people don't actually respond that bad to dietary cholesterol at all. So the reason we have the recommendations to, and then, and then the same actually um, relationship applies for saturated fat as well. So the reason we have the recommendations for to reduce saturated fat, and we used to have the recommendations to reduce uh, dietary cholesterol, and actually some people still think we should reduce dietary cholesterol, is because most people aren't actually going to go without these foods and then have a lipid panel done and then start eating a bunch of these foods and have another lipid panel done to try to see what their um, response is to these foods. If you want to go do that, I think that would be really great to inform you, meaning you, meaning like your listeners. But um, yeah, uh, but most people don't actually do that. So like a lot of public health recommendations, most people aren't going to get measles, but that's kind of a bad example. Most people aren't going to get a heart heart attack because they eat too much saturated fat, but because a certain number of people will, we tend to have these broad-based recommendations for everybody, which will then uh, decrease the overall population risk, even though on an individual level, it might not necessarily um, be all that important for, for this or that particular person. So um, there's those nuances, there's those caveats, there's the reasoning about why the government, despite those caveats, still makes the recommendations in the direction that they do, um, even though it's not necessarily always individualized. So I don't, hopefully that's enough. No, you covered that very well. Uh, when it comes down to saturated fat, we cover the monounsaturated fats, the polyunsaturated fats, the replacement with carbohydrates. All in all, when it comes down to saturated fat, of course, the big picture in the scheme of things is replacing with monounsaturated is better. Replacing with polyunsaturated, if it is not an oxidized polyunsaturated fat, yeah. is better. Um, no difference, like you said, with when we're replacing with carbohydrates may even be even worse. Um, and then yeah. I think the most important thing to keep in mind when you're looking at saturated fat and cholesterol is checking to see if you have the genetics for it. Do you have familiar hypercholesterolemia? Do you uh -huh. have a copy of the ApoE4 gene? Do you have hypothyroidism or a genetic risk for hypothyroidism? Because all these things can elevate your cholesterol level and create a more detrimental response to saturated fat versus somebody who doesn't have that same genetic factors as you. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, and, and I think, I don't know if I covered this, but I think that uh, the, okay, so this is a little controversial, but it's true. It's basically lipids are only one part of your risk. So um, if you have a modestly increased lipid, but everything else is on point and everything else is really, really on point, then you're probably only going to have a modest increase in risk as a result of a modest increase in lipids. So that's another consideration to have. If you like your lifestyle, if it works really well for you and um, you don't have like extraordinarily crazy high LDL cholesterol, then you're probably not as a, that much of a risk. On the other hand, if you have a lot of risk factors for cardiovascular disease, um, you want to try to hit as much as you can the different risk factors that you can. So it, it really depends on your um, individual situation. Um, on the whole, and probably in, in most people, higher lipids are going to increase cardiovascular disease risk, but it all but the extent of that increase depends on your individual biological context, like how healthy you are at baseline to begin with. So that was the other thing I would add. Yeah, definitely. Now, have you looked at the uh, reviews and the data on the different types of lipoproteins and the sizes? Yeah, so uh, the so the lipid, okay, so there's this guy named Ronald Krauss. He, he has this idea that, and he, and he showed it, or he thought he showed it. I think it was in the 90s. It might have been in the early 2000s. It might even be before the 90s. But anyway, he a, a decade or two ago, he was he thought that he demonstrated, and some people think that he demonstrated that smaller LDL particles are more uh, they cause heart disease more than larger LDL particles, and that's because smaller LDL particles are thought to be you know, more like uh, they have a greater propensity to be oxidized. They have a greater propensity to be trapped inside the arterial wall, the subendothelial space. And they have a, a greater propensity for other kinds of modifications that can make them, um, that can make the immune cells want to, uh, uh, basically heart, heart disease is you get these LDL particles in your, the, the uh, arterial, arterial wall, so your blood vessel walls. Um, then these immune cells, they come in and they get really angry after seeing these uh, lipoprotein particles. They then uh, try to eat them 
And um, they then secrete all these inflammatory molecules that then cause this cascade of um, the creation of uh, arterial plaques, which then grow and grow and grow. And once they grow big enough, uh, a part of them might break off and then go to some other part um, downstream of that particular location. Then um, it might get stuck in that particular part and the clot might form around that particular broken it's called a thrombosis, and then that's what a heart attack is because it's basically one of these clots getting stuck in your heart. It blocks up the blood flow to the heart, and then the heart, that, that tissue directly downstream of that um, blockage dies. It stops working, and it dies. So uh, the, idea, <laughs> the idea is that these uh, smaller lipoprotein particles, and, and, and whenever you're looking at your blood cholesterol, that is an indication of, of how many of these particles that you have around. It's not a direct indication. It's there's some wiggle room here, but it's a pretty good indication of how many of these lipoprotein particles. So the less of these lipoprotein particles that you have around getting into your arterial walls, because how many uh, particles get into your arterial walls is dependent upon how many particles are around in the bloodstream, the better. But there's this idea that the smaller particles are worse. So even though all particles are bad, the smaller particles are even worse than all the other particles. So you want to decrease the number of the small particles that you have so that you can decrease your risk disproportionately um, compared to decreasing the total number of particles. And so one of the, some of the things that increase um, small protein particles is like refined carbohydrate and a lot of other things. So it was thought that this was shown in, I think, the 80s or the 90s that these small protein particles cause an increased, disproportionately increased risk. Now, what lipidologists tend to think today, and I keep talking to people over and over again about this, who are in the mainstream of lipidology and who are on the cutting edge of um, lipids research, they tell me over and over again that, and they've given me a few studies, I've looked at them abstracts, I've looked at some of the data as well, but they've given me studies that, that basically show that the size is not important. It's actually the total number. So whenever they saw a decrease in size in those studies from the 80s and the 90s, they actually had an increase in number overall as well. Once you actually adjust for the increase in number, the size doesn't matter anymore for um, for uh, atherogenic potential for the degree to which um, you might, for, for risk for heart disease. So the thought is, is that this size issue was actually confounded by number and it's actually the number that was driving the increased cardiovascular risk. And the mainstream consensus of, of lipidology today is that it is the number and not the size that is driving cardiovascular disease risk. Whenever you get much smaller uh, particles, that's an indication of a, of a uh, worsened metabolic phenotype, which might... Um, which might be related to risk in other ways, but there's easier ways to have an idea of whenever you have a, uh, um, say, you're, like you're metabolically dysfunctional. One way is like you have too high blood glucose, all these other things. But when you're looking at lipids themselves, the main thing you should be focusing on is the, is the number and not the, the size. Most lipidologists don't believe that the size matters. If you're interested in going deeper than just the number of particles or just your LDL cholesterol levels, you can also look at other things like your insulin levels or your glucose levels. Probably start with blood glucose. And the, I mean, this gets into a whole other issue is if you have normal blood glucose, but it's sometimes a little bit elevated, you have more risk for disease. Uh, some people are making the claim on the internet that you do. There's no really good human evidence that that's actually the case. If you're if you have diabetes or pre-diabetes, then you really need to start worrying. But if you have um, glucose excursions in the normal range, especially if they're they're pretty pretty well into the normal range, you don't need to be worrying about anything. So that's if you want to go down that metabolic route. But if you're interested in the metabolic route, looking at the size of lipoprotein particles is not important. When you're looking at lipids, you want to look at the number. That was such a great overall view of my very generic question. So thank you so much. Just to give my listeners a little bit more, um, just to briefly what I was thinking, you know, those large, um, it's called APOA type of cholesterol. Like he said, large and fluffy, less likely to quote unquote uh, create injury to the endothelium and create that wall artery restriction. And then those LDL, um, APOB, 
quote unquote can access and slip through the endothelial wall and gain insight and cause that damage inflammation leading to the plaques um, and thrombosis. So that's just an overview. I've read different different studies that have kind of like displaced that and said that that's not true or not and there's others that say it is. So overall, just focus on what are your levels? What does your diet look like? What does your lifestyle look like? Do you have other contributing confounding factors that could be influencing your LDL, influencing your cholesterol, and focus on the quality of your diet. And if you have any questions about the quality of your diet, please hire a professional. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and and, and listen to your, I mean, so medicine tends to be a little conservative. Um, it tends not to, it tends not to um, use treatment interventions that are, um, uh, uh, not really rigorously demonstrated just because there's so many different things you could possibly do, be doing to try to make things better, quote unquote. So doctors are pretty conservative about what they will actually use. And so if your doctor is really worried about something in general, you should also be worried about it. And your doctor's not going to um, go usually go down this really long and torturous path of these different um these different biomarkers because we still have a lot to learn about this. But if your doctor really is worried about it, that's, that's, they're, that's pretty conservative. And so you should, you know, pay attention to that. That's what I would say. Yeah. And just because we're talking about saturated fat, cholesterol, just want to mention with medications, because I know everybody has suggested a statin, PPI, antidepressant, everything these days. Make sure yeah. that you are, if you are on a medication, that you are looking at drug nutrient interactions, drug nutrient depletions, because sometimes when you're taking a drug, you can deplete your body of specific nutrients and cause a whole nother issue, or your drug causes a side effect that may cause a whole nother issue. So just really be careful yeah. on what you're taking. Ask your doctor. You have full right. You've got to be your own advocate. Um, and try and educate yourself as much as you can. You can also ask Lacey, and Lacey or I. You know, I'll probably send you to Lacey, though. But you can ask us, and, and we can try to give you some information, too. So. Oh, yeah. I'm more than always happy. And maybe I can even get that on my website. I have a few documents with common drug nutrient interactions, common drug nutrient depletions that hopefully will help you guys a lot. I know um, people come to me and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm on some Balta or I just got put on this statin or I'm on this um, birth control. And what what can I do to help myself? And I'm like, oh, there's a lot you could do. <laughs> so definitely, you guys, feel free to reach out at any time. Um uh are, wait, can I ask you a question? Of course. What what sort of um, statin nutrient? Uh, do you know of any statin nutrient interactions or Cymbalta? Do you know of any antidepressants? It's, it's um, or do you talk about this on your show a bunch? I haven't listened to a whole bunch of episodes, but I'm I'm really curious about this. Yeah. So with statins, you're looking at things like L-carnitine, CoQ10. Um, you're also mm. looking at when it comes down to. Um, what, what did you say? Antidepressants, folate, B vitamins, CoQ10. Um, and then I know, I think it's one of them that does magnesium. Let me pull up so I can give you. Can you get depleted of these nutrients whenever you take these drugs? Yes. Yes. CoQ10 is one of the big ones that you can be severely depleted with. For, for statins in particular. For statins. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I'll have to send you one of my favorite. I'm going to pull it up. There's a bunch of different ones. Um, so, yeah, statins, CoQ10. Um, we have beta blockers, CoQ10, chromium, melatonin. Um, let's look. I wish I had all these memorized, but I, for, for the life of me, cannot. No, um, this is really cool. Yeah. I, I've never even – I've never even – I've not been exposed to this sort of um, – this, this, I guess, this subfield of, of drug nutrient interactions and depletion. Oh my God. It's the it's first very- thing I do whenever I get like consults or clients, they tell me they're, they're drugs. And it's the first thing I do is I see what supplements are you on? What drugs are you on? What could be depleted? Because nobody even thinks about that when they take a drug. Do you see, um, do you do use like clinic, like, um, tests and do you find, a like it, it like in people, that this is this is the case often, like they're actually depleted often. Um, I don't trust serum levels necessarily, so uh, yeah. 
I don't necessarily always test them, but I go based uh-huh. off of symptoms. So if somebody's okay. not feeling good, they're on a drug, and I see this with antidepressants a lot. Um, yeah. I'm like, okay, you know, highly likely you're depleted in folate, folic acid, um, your B vitamins, your vitamin D. So the first thing I do is I look at what could potentially be depleted. How are you feeling? If you're feeling bad, something is going wrong. There's a fire alarm. Yeah. So that's the first thing sure. I do. Yeah, completely. It's it's weird how we treat people's um, very non-specific and general malaise or, or depression with just it's just a pill every time when mm-hmm. probably in a lot of cases it's there's a root cause to it. Something wrong. There's something wrong going on with them, and we're just we're just uh, treating the symptoms. Um, and and we're we're actually and in that way they're kind of distracted from actually dealing with the real problem, um, which might have other downstream. Uh, negative effects. It's kind of weird how we do that. And it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, it really is. And just to give my listeners a little bit of background, we've talked about this before, but when you're looking at things like anything mental health related, you got to make sure the first thing that you're looking at is your gut, your gut and your thyroid, because those right there are going to be connected via your vagus nerve, your central nervous system. And there's a complete interaction with your gut brain axis being your second brain. So there's a lot of different things that people have to keep in mind. There's nothing wrong with taking medication. I take Zoloft myself. Otherwise, I would be a complete crazy person. Um, (laughs) And I admit it. I admit it. Um, But Definitely in regards to anything you're taking, you got to make sure you're working with a qualified practitioner that's going to look at the whole entire picture. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Or or else they'll just, they'll just, they'll just give, it's kind of unfortunate how, I mean, again, I was talking about medical school earlier, right? It's like we're treating, we're taught medicine. Yeah. We're trouble. I mean, we're taught in the medical school, sort of a very superficial level. And we're taught that, you know, this drug can treat this particular disease, but we don't really, we don't go really deep and we don't have a really deep knowledge of a lot of the things that you're talking about and how to address them. And so we're just like, oh, you know, your depression is not getting better. Well, then I'll add something else to it or, or you know, we'll just change the drug or, or this or that whenever there might be some other underlying factors that also might be very important that um, that we haven't addressed. It's just kind of unfortunate. It, it's also quite difficult to deal with because, I don't know, we, I mean, we could get into a really long sort of philosophical discussion about this, but, but it's also, it's also, I, I just wonder, um, how would you train a doctor to do that? How would you, um, and do, and like, how would, how would you design all the studies that you need to do to design in order to make sure that that particular approach is, um, is an approach that we're using in the clinic often. It just sounds it just—it just seems like medicine is so often very just scratching the surface of of how we can potentially help people, and then whenever we really want to help people in these particular ways that you're talking about, we all often have to go outside of um, outside of what's necessarily rock solid in 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 say like 1,000 person randomized controlled trial, and we have to try all sorts of other different things, and it's mm-hmm. just. It's very difficult to deal with from an evidence. And you know um, what I think what could help, and of course this is not going to happen, but what if you automatically, when you go into medical school, you automatically go into your own field that you want to dive into. And then yeah. it can get even more comprehensive and complex into that specific field. Yeah. 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 No, I, yeah. I think, I, yeah, totally. I think people should, there should be, there could be more specialization, especially because we learn so much stuff that we don't need to know, like for the board exams. So we really could. I feel um, that in my soul with nutrition. Like, why do I need to know that baking powder makes muffins rise when there's too much or something stupid stuff? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Do you, did you have to learn that? I had to learn so much stuff that <laughs> didn't make any, any sense whatsoever. Like I have like 10 feet required for events in between chairs it's just like complete stupid stuff 10 feet required for events between chair what do you what i literally can't even remember it because i memorized it for the (laughs) exam and then i said i don't want to know anymore and i just like threw all the information outside of my head we have the same thing in medicine we have to learn about these exotic parasites in africans you know that's only in africa and and uh and and like these these um, lysosomal disorders that we'll see maybe like once every, you know, 
one out of a hundred positions we'll see once in their careers. It's it's kind of silly and inefficient how we do it a lot of times. Well, hopefully, hopefully there will be changes to how different practitioners um, not are raised, but feel like they're almost raised, but how we're educated, hopefully, in the future. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been such an excellent conversation, and you've given my listeners so much insight. Can you tell my listeners where they can find you, where they can follow you, and then any exciting news coming your way for 2020? Uh, You can... You can find me on Twitter at uh, Kevin in Bass. Um, that's K-V-I-N and then another N and then B-A-S-S like a fish. And I'm trying to do more Instagram and YouTube. It's a struggle, but I'm trying to do more uh, Instagram, trying to balance social media. Hopefully I'll do some more Instagram. I keep being encouraged to do that because that's where all the kiddos are these days. <laughs> and it's actually, it's actually my generation, but, uh, for some reason, I'm hanging out with all the old people on uh, on Twitter, but I like Twitter. But I'm no, Twitter is where it's at. I've said it several times on my podcast. Twitter is where it is at. I love Twitter. Yeah, and then I also have a a, a website at Nutritional Revolution. Uh, it's like nutrition and then an al and revolution, like with an r dot uh, org o r g. So nutritionalrevolution.org, and that's my blog, and I'm growing that and. I post a couple new posts every month. Yeah, and uh, uh, for 2020, what what new things? I'm going to try to finish my PhD. There's going to be some really interesting – I know we didn't get a chance to talk about um, intermittent fasting, but there's going to be some really interesting time-restricted feeding studies coming out in 2020, uh, not mine, uh, other people's, that will uh, uh, comment on and address some of the um, – some of the excitement around time restricted feeding and uh, also watch out for some of Kevin Hall stuff as well. I feel like I'll, I feel like I'm just telling you stuff that other people are doing and then I'll, I'll hopefully uh, almost be done with my PhD and um, you know, watch for some stuff that hopefully I will be publishing on ketogenic diets in 2020 as well for cancer. So that's what I'm doing. That's so exciting. I'm so pumped for you. That's going to be amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an excellent conversation. You guys, make sure you follow him on Twitter. If you are not on Twitter, get on Twitter ASAP. As I've said in my podcast, that is the place for looking at uh, different researchers, different doctors, different prof- health professionals just talking back and forth. It is amazing. It is my definition of uh, reality TV. So make sure you get on top of that. And I hope you guys have such an amazing new year.